Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you all to respond together. Thanks be to God. You can follow along with the scripture reading on the screen. Today's reading is found in Hebrews 11, 32 through 34, and Judges 4, 1 through 16. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Judges 4, 1 through 16. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hirosheth Hegoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Hirosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hirosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I got to give props to Carly again for crushing the pronunciations. She legitimately, as we confirmed during the first sermon, can pronounce them better than I can. So. Um, if you see me kind of glazing over some of those terms, just remember what Carly said, because she said it right. So thanks, Carly. And uh, good morning once again. Uh, good to be with you all. I want to begin by wishing a happy Mother's Day to all of our moms here in the room today. Uh, motherhood is a really big deal. It's a sacred privilege, a high calling. Uh, I know it is really hard work, 
and oftentimes a lot of motherhood goes unseen and moms can certainly be the unsung heroes of any given situation. And so I hope and pray that today is a day where we can show honor to those to whom honor is due. And if you are a mom here today, know that we love you. We are so grateful for you. We're praying for you today. And I'm praying specifically that you'd be encouraged in the work of motherhood and that it would bear much fruit. I also want to acknowledge that I know that today can be a difficult day for many people. Might be some of you here in this room who are mourning the loss of a mother or a child or who are more acutely reminded of a strained relationship today. Uh, I know some of you in this room may have a godly and good desire to be a mom and it just hasn't happened yet for whatever reason. I also know that we have many in our midst who are foster and adoptive moms and are navigating an often hard and uncertain road ahead of you. And so I want to say no matter where today hits you, I want to remind you that God cares deeply for you. He is not wasting any moments of pain or uncertainty or difficulty, and he sees you and he knows you and he loves you. Psalm 56 reminds us that God has kept track of our sufferings and he's bottled up our tears. And in the Lord this morning, for those of you who are moms, who are just exhausted and weary and tired, uh, know that your work of motherhood is not in vain. So before we jump into our passage today, I just want to pause and I want to take a moment to pray. Pray for our moms and pray for the women who are here in this room today. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to show honor and gratitude and appreciation for uh, the moms here in our lives and in this room. God, I pray today that they would be uh, encouraged, that we would have an opportunity to show honor to them, to out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, we would be able to love our moms well. And I pray today they would be encouraged in the work that you have called them to. God, I pray that you would strengthen those who feel weary in this task. May you give encouragement to those who are faint-hearted or feel defeated. God, may you bring hope to the situations that feel hopeless in this arena. And for those who Mother's Day is just a hard day, God, I pray that they would run to your throne of grace where they can find help and receive mercy in their time of need. So God bless our moms, bless uh, the act of mothering that's happening in our congregation. Just pray that today would be a sweet day for them. Uh, I pray now as we transition and we think about your word and want to spend some time considering what a life of faith looks like from the book of Judges, uh, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Help us see and treasure Jesus today. We ask you in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we turn to uh, Hebrews 11, we're beginning to wind down our series that we've been in all spring as we've been examining a life of enduring faith. And as a former teacher, I did have to chuckle a little bit at the introduction to this final section. You see, I remember as a teacher uh, grading a lot of papers or assignments that were due at midnight on a certain day that just so happened to be submitted at about 11.55, 11.58 p.m., depending on if the system allowed you to submit it that late. And they sounded an awful lot like the preamble to this section. If you go back to Hebrews 11 and what Carly read, the author begins here, and he says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samson. You see what he's doing there is he's running out of time, and he just starts listing names and events kind of out of order. Uh, it's clear he has uh, not a lot enough space to get to what he wanted to get to. And after all, he is trying to tell the whole Old Testament story 
in one chapter, and quite frankly, by verse 32, he's only about a third of the way there. So even though we trust and believe that God's word is inspired and what is here is what is supposed to be here, uh, the pace is going to pick up here rapidly. Um, now, rather than follow all the way through from the period of the judges to the kings to the prophets to the time between the testaments all the way to Jesus, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in Judges the next three weeks, because why not? Judges is a boatload of fun, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, we're actually going to skip over the prophets section because we're going to spend a lot of time in the prophets this fall in a sermon series. That's what we call a teaser in the business. So stay tuned. We've got a good sermon series in a prophet's coming this fall. Um, but today, in the next couple weeks, we're going to look at the book of Judges. Uh, specifically today, the story of Barak and Deborah and Sisera in Judges 4 and into chapter 5 a little bit. So as we look back at that chapter, here's our main idea today. Here's where I want to land the plane as we look at this passage. Faith embraces God's surprising deliverance on our behalf and gives glory to him alone. Faith embraces God's surprising deliverance on our behalf and gives glory to him alone. And as we walk through this story, I want to look at three movements. I want to look at our problem again, God's glory alone, and then God's victory accomplished. Let's begin with our problem again. And I want to use this point to set up the book of Judges a little bit, because you might be very unfamiliar with this book. Uh, Judges takes place in the Old Testament between the exodus from Egypt and the beginning of the monarchy in Israel in the time of the kings. Now, Judges is not exactly what you would call a happy book, okay? Uh, I've heard it tagged once that Judges is despicable people doing deplorable things. Uh, the tagline on the Bible Project video, if you watch it, right underneath Judges, it says that it's Israel's total failure. Okay, it is not a happy story. It is a story of the spiritual downfall of God's chosen people. See, what happened was the people of Israel, they failed to drive out the Canaanites from the land they had been promised. And what happened is all of these Canaanite nations, they become more and more of a problem. The Israelites... Rather than living as God's chosen people, begin to live like the Canaanites. They engage in all sorts of idolatrous worship. And rather than inheriting the promised land, these nations turn on them, and all of a sudden they become oppressed, and others are ruling over them cruelly and ruthlessly. Now, in response to this, throughout the book of Judges, God is going to raise up these figures that we call Judges. Now, judges are not like modern courtroom judges, right? They don't just sit back and sort of make executive decisions on a case that they might be hearing. Now, these judges are more like military leaders. They are more like rescuers and deliverers who were uniquely equipped by the Spirit of God to overthrow all of the enemies of Israel. But by the end of the book, these judges end up being a lot more like mercenaries and warlords more than anything else. And the judges become more and more corrupt as the story goes on. See, there's this phrase that's repeated four times in Judges. This is the key phrase, the key verse. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Rather, than seeking to do what was right in the Lord's eyes, 
the people thought that they knew best. They did what was right according to their own standards and their own law, not God's law. And because of this, they fall into the snare of sin. And what happens is this sin, it becomes a cycle. Every story that you read in Judges all the way through to the very end has the exact same cycle to it. Okay, here's the cycle. The people sin and they begin to worship false gods. They literally worship idols. Then they become oppressed by the nations that worshiped these idols and often Baal or Asherah, whatever they choose. So they sin, they become oppressed, then they cry out for help. They find themselves at the bottom and they cry out, Lord, save us and deliver us. And God, in his grace and in his kindness, he over and over again raises up a deliverer. He raises up judges to save them from their situation. And then that ushers in peace into the land for a period of time. But the problem is that peace never lasts and the cycle starts over and over again at the top and they begin to sin once more. That's exactly what's happening in Judges 4. If you've got your copy of the scriptures, open up there with me and let's read along in these first few verses. It says, And the people of Israel did, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. The people of Israel then cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Unfortunately, in the book of Judges, it's the same old story again. The people sinned. The assumption is that they worshipped the gods of Baal. And therefore, the Lord allows them to be oppressed. And the oppression is bad. It's Sisera. He has 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed them cruelly and ruthlessly for 20 years. There's a key word here I want us to pay attention to. It's the word in verse 1 that we see. It's the word again. The people of Israel again did what was evil. Now, brothers and sisters, if you've ever taken seriously the sin in your own life, I bet you know this feeling of again, don't you? I mean, do you feel the weight and the sting of that word? See, this word again reminds us that sin has a predictable, boring, cyclical nature to it, doesn't it? Sin is always a return to somewhere that we've already been before. There is no real creativity in sin. There's nothing new or fresh in it. It is the same predictable routine, but yet, so often, we can't seem to shake it, can we? Now, why is that the case? Why do we tend to find ourselves there, wherever there is for you, again and again? What's going on? Well, we've talked about it with the people of Israel before. But there often is a promise of comfort and control in our sin. There is an allure and a draw of security and predictability to our lives that brings us back to that place again. And in this way, if we're honest, we really, deep down, are not that much different than those who constructed golden calves and those who offered sacrifices to wooden poles, and those who went up to the high places to worship pagan gods. And friends, that's because idolatry 
is not an ancient problem. Idolatry is a universal fallen human problem. Now, our idolatry tends to look a little more sophisticated than theirs did, but at the end of the day, it produces the exact same results that the people of Israel got here in the book of Judges. Tim Keller's helpful. He reminds us that an idol is not merely a pole or some sort of statue that you might bow down to. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, idolatry is a worship problem. We are all wired for worship as image bearers of God. We can't help but worship, but so often our worship is aimed in the wrong direction. We make the object of our worship the wrong thing. We make it something that enslaves us rather than the thing that frees us and gives us life. And the scary reality is that idols and false gods always overpromise and underdeliver. They demand more and more of us while they take more and more from us. They promise us joy and happiness, but we end up miserable and back in the same place again. They become snares and traps, and when we have to have something, it becomes an addiction, and all sin eventually becomes addiction if it's not checked. So wherever you feel that temptation most strongly, whether it's in money or sex or power, maybe it's in your career, people-pleasing, status, substances, pleasure, whatever it is, we so often are stuck in this same cycle as the Israelites. And the oppression, the physical oppression in the book of Judges is a picture of a spiritual reality that is true for all of us. You see, Jesus himself said, truly, truly, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone. No exemptions. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's why that word, again, is so haunting and so powerful. So the people of Israel, they needed a way out of their sin cycle. And brothers and sisters, we need a way out too, don't we, from the again reality of sin. So how do we get out? Well, the rest of this story, I believe, is going to remind us and draw our attention to how and why we can have enduring faith and repentance even in the face of our sin. So if that's our problem again, then let's secondly talk about God's glory alone. See, despite the sin of Israel, the book of Judges tells us that God's grace is relentless toward the undeserving. Over and over and over again, God hears the cries of his people who got themselves there in the first place, by the way. He hears them from the bottom and he shows them grace. He raises up a judge, a deliverer, and that's what happens here. Judges 4 is unique because we actually have two figures to consider. Let's look at verse four, verses 4 and 5. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was sitting, was judging, excuse me, Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel 
in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Might be fitting on Mother's Day that Deborah is the only judge who is a woman throughout this book. But she's not just a judge, she's also a prophetess. She communicated the word of the Lord. She was gifted by the Spirit to proclaim God's judgments upon the people. Because of that, people would come to her palm tree that was between these two locations, and she would give wise counsel and mediation on whatever they might be facing. So that's Deborah. And then Deborah, by the Spirit of God, in verse 6, calls another. It says, she sent and summons Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. See, Deborah summons this guy named Barak, and he is to be the military leader of the people. He's to be their warrior. She tells them, listen, God is calling you to do the impossible. Sisera, that cruel, mighty commander of the Canaanites, he's to be given into your hand. You are surely going to defeat him. Now think about the honor that Barak would have received for that. I mean, they've been oppressed for 20 years. That's an awful long time to be oppressed by a foreign ruler. That's a heavy hand that's upon them for a long, long time. And the one to lead them out of their oppression, the one to overthrow Sisera, the one who's going to defeat the enemies of God's people, well, he'd be a hero, wouldn't he? But Barak is a little more complex than that. He hears that call, and then in verse 8, he has some terms. He looks back at Deborah, and he says... If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So Deborah looks at him and she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. There's a lot there in those two verses. So what's going on in this exchange? Well, many have argued that Barak was being a bit fearful in this situation, that he was really just being a coward. Like, hey, you were told to go, God said you were going to win, and now you want Deborah to come with you? But I think if we look a little closer, something deeper is going on. I don't think Barak is actually disobeying this call. Instead, he's acknowledging that Deborah, she speaks for the Lord. Deborah provides wise counsel. And if she is someone who speaks for the Lord and gives wise judgments, why wouldn't he want her to come with him? It assures that God's presence was with them in this battle. And Deborah doesn't rebuke him. She says, yeah, I will surely come with you. You see, one commentator says it like this. What are, what are we witnessing when Barak refuses to set out without this woman? Not cowardice, but faith. Faith. That is, which is the glorious combination of a humble confession of his own inadequacy and a sure confidence in the grace of God. You see, what some might deem as weakness, the Bible often deems as faith. This is why I believe Barak is the one who shows up in Hebrews 11, after all. 
He's not acting out of cowardice. In faith, he is fighting to believe the word of the Lord. And let's not get it twisted. He has to believe the word of Lord against believe the word of the Lord against all human odds, doesn't he? Remember, Sisera, the text has told us three times. It wants to emphasize it. He has 900 chariots of iron. Remember a few weeks back, Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt? He had 600 chariots, and they apparently weren't of iron. Here, Sisera, he's got an even bigger fleet, even stronger fleet. These chariots would have been the ancient equivalent to a military tank today. And Barak, yeah, he has a lot of men, but they don't have any chariots. This would have been an impossible battle. And Barak, by faith, believes the word of the Lord. And he wants the assurance of God's presence with him. Against all earthly odds, he obeys the call in faith. And I would argue that if we today, if we want to endure with faith, if we're going to break that again cycle of sin in our own lives, we have to step into what is often the unknown and the unfamiliar in faith, trusting God's word. Not trusting our intuitions, not a hoping for the best. Barak doesn't have any of that. He wants Deborah with him because he wants to believe the word of the Lord. He's going into the unknown and the impossible, and he's doing so in faith. But the second half of Deborah's reply is also critical. She says, yeah, I'll go with you. But listen, when we go and we lead this improbable victory, you are not going to receive any glory. You're not going to be the one to kill Sisera. You're not going to get to bag your prize. Instead, a woman is going to kill him. Now, Barak might be thinking, oh, Deborah's going to kill him. It's not actually how the story goes. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Deborah's words are a reminder of who the real deliverer is. Deborah is reminding both of them who the real hero of the story is. It's not Barak. It's not Deborah. It's not Jael who's going to kill Sisera. It is the Lord himself. The people got themselves into this mess, and the only way out is by looking to their only true hope, which is the rescue that comes from the Lord. They need a sovereign, mighty warrior who is fighting on their behalf. And the Lord will get the victory, which means he gets the glory. It's the only way it works. The Lord wins the victory, and he gets the glory. That theme of the glory is so important, not just for Israel, but for us today. You see, deep down, we all love a little bit of glory, don't we? We're all a little bit hungry for it. In fact, so often our idols, whatever it is that we are worshiping, is connected with that idea of glory. We like to operate in a way that people see us as impressive, right? They see our strengths. They get to see all these things that we accomplished. At the end of the day, we like that glory a lot, don't we? This is why we are drawn so often to self-salvation projects rather than the gospel, which is the opposite of that, because they promise we end up with just a little bit of glory and credit at the end. But that's not the way out of the again cycle of sin. The way out acknowledges, just like Barak, we are helpless on our own. Lord, unless you do this on my behalf, I'm stuck. But despite not getting glory, being assured ahead of time that he would not get to kill Sisera, 
Barak still steps forward in faith. The victory is the Lord's, and the glory goes to him alone. And what God's going to do is he's going to deliver his people in a surprising and an unexpected way. He's going to do it in a way where everybody who heard this story from back then to all the way thousands of years now to us right now, every time we read this story, we would say, yeah, that was the Lord's victory alone and his glory alone. There was no other way. So let's look, finally, at God's victory accomplished. As these verses unfold, it's a reminder of a constant theme in Judges that God is in control no matter what it might look like and even if we can't see it. God is in control. There are lots of characters. There are tons of places thrown out in the story, aren't there? But at the end of the day, there is one sovereign Lord. There is one God who has his hand in and through all of these things to ensure it's his victory and to ensure it's his glory. So we get to verse 11. It says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. I think Hobab is an awesome name. Can we all say Hobab together? Ready? Hobab. That was therapeutic, wasn't it? <laughs> Hobab's the father-in-law of Moses. And he pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaninum, which is near Kadesh. All right, now that seems like a random verse, doesn't it? Let's be honest. We're reading our Bible and we're like, okay, cool fact, right? Thanks for that information. Well, what we don't see yet is that God is using this little neighborly exchange where somebody moves away from somebody else to sovereignly place this family precisely where Sisera is going to flee to. Now, I didn't read it. We didn't read it today. But if you read verse 17 through 22, you can read about how Sisera actually dies. It does, he does die by the hand of a woman. It's incredibly violent. It involves a hammer and a tent peg and the wife of Heber named Jael. Okay, I'll let you read it. It's one of those stories where you're like, oh, that's in the Bible. Didn't know that, right? Felt a little violent for Mother's Day, but you could read it right there. But God is sovereignly ensuring that that death is going to take place. He is already arranging the details there in verse 11. Then in verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with them. They went to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Well, let's not miss this scene here. Barak, Deborah, 10,000 troops. Okay, they have gone up to the top of Mount Tabor. Not a real tall mountain, it's almost like an upside down bowl. Okay, but they've gone up the top of that high hill, high mountain, and they're up there because, obviously, that gives them a strategic advantage, right? Who's chasing them? Chariots of iron. Do you want those chariots to go downhill or uphill? You want them to go uphill. So Barak is camped out at the top of the mountain with Deborah and the troops. All of a sudden, Sisera is gathering below with all of his troops, and Deborah says, great, now it's time to go. Now it's time to go. The Lord will go before you, and I want you to go down the mountain. Did you catch that? They're up at the safety. They're up at the strategic location. And God, through Deborah, says, no, nah, that's cool. The Lord has gone before you. Go down there. As in, go down to the place where you are going to get wiped out. Go down to the place where those chariots have the advantage. Go down to the place where unless I show up, you're going to be defeated. 
And in that moment of faith, Barak and the troops go down the mountain. And verse 15 says this, The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. They are soundly defeated by the Israelites. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of want some more information, right? Like, how did this go down? How did they defeat the chariots of iron? What in the world happened? How did the Lord rout Sisera? Well, I have good news for you. The text later on actually tells us what happened. You see, it says the Lord routed the Canaanites. That word routed in the Old Testament is often used to refer to God bringing a storm upon his enemies. And here's the cool thing. The very next chapter of Judges, Judges 5, is a poetic song of worship from Deborah and Barak as a reflection on the victory that God just accomplished. See, Judges 4 is an historical narrative of the victory. Judges 5 is a theological song of worship. It peels back the curtain of history to trace God's sovereign hand behind it all to deliver his people. And as a quick side note, by the way, we need that same perspective today. If we want an enduring faith, we don't just need a historical account of God's faithfulness. Yes, we need that. We need a theological account that draws us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Judges 5 provides that. So as we look at Judges 5, let me read a few verses, beginning in verse 4. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, look what happened. The earth trembled. An earthquake happened. The heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Down in verse 19. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan. Verse 20. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon, march on my soul with might. You see, the Lord sovereignly made it rain all on this battle just as they went down the mountain. And as it rained and as an earthquake happened, all of a sudden the river Kishon swelled and all of a sudden it was a torrent of water. A flash flood occurs. And you know what's useless in a flash flood? Chariots of iron. And all of a sudden the Lord routed the Canaanites and the Israelites are given a victory. There's a beautiful irony here, by the way, too. Baal worship was always associated with two things, with fertility and with the weather. And God looks at the Canaanites and he looks at the Israelites and says, do you really want to worship that God of the weather? How's that going to go for them? Watch me literally make it rain on them and destroy them by the weather. See, God is the one who will rescue his people alone because he gets the glory alone. No matter what angle you want to look at it, he is the hero and the rescuer. And the people simply are called to have faith. And by that faith, look at what it says in Hebrews 11. It's exactly the story we just read. It says, by faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. 
You see, by faith, they experienced the victory of the Lord on their behalf and gave him the glory alone. Now, you might be saying, that's a cool story. Glad that's there in the Bible. But what in the world does that have to do with us today? Why is that Hebrews 11? What does that teach us about a life of enduring faith? Well, as we lay bare what just happened, a victory came about on behalf of an undeserving people in a completely surprising and unexpected way. God brings a victory in a way that only he can so that they might see his glory and they might come back to him out of their cycle of sin with faith and repentance. And brothers and sisters, I want to charge you today that this is our story as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of an unexpected and surprising victory, isn't it? I mean, who expected that the enthronement of Jesus, the one who comes as God in the flesh and says the kingdom of God is here, that his enthronement would not be on a seat in Rome or in Jerusalem, but on a cross? Certainly not his disciples who were rebuked over and over again for trying to get him away from that image. Certainly everyone who looked on at the crucified Jesus thought this was an utter and complete failure. But an even more surprising turn... Who expected that three days later, the crucified Jesus would walk out of the tomb? Who expected that Jesus came to deal with an enemy far greater than the Romans or some oppressing nation, but came to overthrow sin, death, evil, and Satan himself? The only people there on Sunday morning were there to anoint a dead body. Nobody was expecting it. You see, Jesus Christ had delivered us in an unexpected and surprising way from an even greater enemy to an even better victory. And you and I, we don't take any credit for that. It's his victory and it's his glory. But here's the beautiful part, it's all on our behalf. He has invited us into the spoils of that victory. When we sit back and we behold, when we worship the God who is all powerful, the one who has won this glorious victory that no one else could win on our behalf, we're in a position to receive his grace. We're in a position not to turn back to the false gods that we want to run to, but to run to the true God, to run to King Jesus, who was crucified yet raised on our behalf so we might be free from the enslaving power of sin. Listen, if we want out of our sin cycle, we better be swept up in that story. That's it. Charles Spurgeon has a beautiful reflection on this that I think is a fitting conclusion to our time. Listen to what he says. He says, Deborah saying concerning the overthrow of Israel's enemies and the deliverance given to the tribes. But we have a far richer theme for music. We've been delivered from worse enemies and saved by a greater salvation. Let our gratitude be deeper. Let our song be more jubilant. Glory be unto God. We can say that our sins, which were like mighty hosts, have been swept away. Not by that ancient river, the river Kishon, but by streams which flowed from Jesus' side. Our great enemy has been overcome, and his head is broken. Not Sisera, but Satan has been overthrown. The seed of the woman has bruised his head forever. We are now ransomed from the gallon yoke. We walk at liberty through the power of the great liberator, the Lord Jesus.
do you want out of that again cycle of sin? Only one place to go. Turn to our great liberator, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story. Uh, we thank you for uh, the book of Judges, as messy as it is, to remind us, Lord, that the battle and the victory is yours and yours alone, and the glory belongs to you alone because of that. So God, I pray that we who are seeking to live with enduring faith as we stumble our way through this, as we uh, seek to live faithfully but so often get stuck in that again cycle, God, would you free us from that with a bigger vision, a bigger experience with the gospel of grace. Holy Spirit, show us the glory of our Savior, the crucified, risen Jesus who has ascended to heaven and who will come again in glory to set all things right. Strengthen us for that day. Help us be faithful now to full repentance and sin because in your kindness, you call us home and you show us grace upon grace. Help us respond well to that now, we pray in Jesus' name.